0: I'm going to encourage you guys to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I just want to start this morning by telling you that some of the stuff I'm going to talk about this morning is difficult. Okay, A little bit difficult mentally to comprehend, but even more so, difficult to agree with. Okay, It's just difficult to accept, and I'm going to acknowledge that. I'll be honest and say that there are some stuff in the Bible... that uh, that I don't like. There's some stuff in there that I don't particularly like, which is why I didn't write it, okay? But if it's truly the Word of God, uh, which at Maricopa Springs we believe it is, then I don't have the right to pick and choose out of the Bible what I like and I don't like. It's not mine to redact with a thick black marker. Okay? I don't have the right to bend the word of God to my will to make the Bible submit to me and my likes and preferences. As believers, we, just, we can't do that. That's not our right. Okay? And so when I encounter something in Scripture that I don't like, it's my responsibility first to understand it, and then once I understand it, to live by it. That's what we are called to do. And as far as our topic today is concerned, I hope that by the grace of God, I can explain it understandably and compassionately enough to convince you of its biblical truth and importance. But I have two requests that I want to make of you before I get into this, okay? And I can tell some of you already are like, I'm nervous, okay? Well, here it is. First, search the Bible yourself to independently verify what I tell you. Okay, That's your responsibility. I'm not asking you to live by my will for your life or to conform to what I believe. I'm asking you to conform to what the Bible says, which means you need to know what the Bible says. Okay, You can't just take it from me. Uh, I hope that Maricopa Springs never becomes a church where people sit in their seats and just kind of complacently nod at everything the pastor says without making sure that the pastor is actually teaching the word of God. I hope we never become a church like this. And so not only this Sunday, but every Sunday, you should critically evaluate the things that I teach you to make sure that it lines up with God's word. And if you disagree because what I have said contradicts or, or possibly even seemingly contradicts God's word, then we should talk about it so that I can either change to be more accurate to what Scripture says, or you can change so that you can be more accurate so that together we can come to a more accurate understanding of God's word. What it means and how then to live together accordingly to it. Okay? And just because I'm your pastor doesn't mean that I'm always right. It's like 99.99% of the time. But you have this responsibility to, I'm kidding there, it's, I'm, I'm inaccurate a little bit more than that. But, uh, but you have this responsibility to make sure that what I'm teaching you lines up with what the Bible says. Okay. Now that being said, please have confidence in me. Okay, I work hard to teach the word of God accurately. I pray that when I am teaching, the Holy Spirit will guide us in truth. But you still shouldn't assume that everything that I say is right on. You should measure it next to the truth of God's word to determine its accuracy. Okay? And the litmus test is this, plain and simple. If there's a disagreement between what I say and what the God, uh, word of God says, then his word of, will always be right and I will always be wrong. Okay, provided that we have an accurate understanding of what it means. Now again, hopefully that won't happen, but uh, you know that if it does, uh, go to God's word. Okay, that's where you should lean. The second preface this morning, real quick, is if you've got a problem with something that I say today or any day ever, please approach me about it. Okay, Please don't be one of those people who uh, disappears because you disagree or, or potentially gossips or even just holds it in and broods over it. I want to answer your questions. I want to show you my interpretive thought process so that you can potentially help me get better or I can help you get better. I, I want to work together to understand Scripture better. Okay, um, And you, you might actually be able to help me do that. So, um, again, if ever you find yourself at odds with something I say, call me. Let's talk about it. Come up to me after the service. Let's talk about it. Let's dig together to find the truth, okay? And I promise I'll be respectful and gentle and compassionate as we work through it and humble enough to say, you're right, I'm wrong, and uh, I need to change my perspective there, okay? So, with that precursor said, the question that I want to ask today is, why was David not allowed to build the temple, We're going through this epic series, we're looking at all the different, not all the different ways, some of the different ways in which scripture points to Christ coming and his redemptive work on the cross. And last week we looked at uh, David and Solomon in the temple, and why, the question why, why was David not allowed to build the temple? And last week I told you it was Solomon who had the privilege and the responsibility and the blessings to build the temple in Israel, and God refused to allow David to do that, even though David was a man after God's own heart. And so why? And I think God's decision to not let David build the temple has implications for the future of our epic story. Okay, so I want to devote our time together to sort of answering this question and understanding it. So 1 Chronicles, I think I said 20, but I meant 22. If you'll turn with me there. Verses 7 through 10. And it's on the inside sheet of your bulletin there if you want to look at that instead. It says, David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever." Now we already know from last week that this promise that God made to David concerning Solomon and the temple had an immediate historical understanding, an immediate historical meaning, Okay, which was David's literal son Solomon would build a massive temple of stone in the city of Jerusalem where Israel would come to worship God because his very presence would dwell among his people. But we also learned last week that it had a prophetic meaning, which is that from the bloodline of David would come Jesus, the Son of God, who would build the church, which is the temple in this day and age, in this New Testament era, where the presence of God lives with his people in the very hearts and lives of those who believe. And God now dwells inseparably with the people who call him Lord and Savior through the work of Jesus on the cross. But now in this text, we see a distinction between the kind of reign that characterized the kingship of David and the kind of reign that characterized the kingship of Solomon. And God tells David, you will not build the temple because your kingship, your reign, has been a reign of bloodshed and war. David, you've served my purposes to establish your throne, which is the throne that Jesus will assume. And reign is king forever, but because of the bloodshed, I will not permit you to build my house, my temple. And instead, God says Solomon will build the temple because his kingship, his reign, will be a reign characterized by rest. He will be a man who brings peace and quiet to Israel. And so David was the man of war, and Solomon was the man of peace. Briefly, I want to look at their individual uh, reigns for just a moment, okay? Such a mighty warrior was David that a folk song arose among the women of Israel. And you can read it in 1 Samuel 18, 7 if at some point you want to turn there. But it went like this. I'm not going to sing it for you because I'll spare you the pain. But essentially it said, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Okay, how'd you like to be the focus of a folk song that proclaimed your awesomeness by saying that you had killed tens of thousands of people? Okay, personally, I would not like to be the focus of that song. But you have to understand the political climate of the Middle East around 1000 BC when God was beginning to establish the kingdom of Israel. This was a time of great turmoil. Maybe you remember from your history class on the Fertile Crescent, right? With aggressive, warmongering nations rising up and falling in these repeating cycles of the centuries. God had promised Israel in the midst of this that the land east of the Mediterranean, the promised land, would be their land. But for almost 400 years after the exodus, There was no centralized leadership in Israel to unify the people and expel these other warring nations out of the land. And from almost every side, Israel was under assault. you, You can read about it in the book of Judges, 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 1 Kings. It tells the story of these heroic efforts of some people called specifically by God, appointed leaders from the hand of God, And it was only through their efforts that Israel managed to survive through this period of history. And so David, being one of those leaders, was a hero for his victories in war. And although he shed much blood in and around Israel in his efforts, it was all according to God's plan to expel the demonic influence of the pagan nations surrounding Israel. Nations who tempted Israel to turn away from the one true God. And so David fought the Philistines in the west of Israel. You know the story of David and Goliath. He scored victories over the various Aramean uh, states in the north, coming from Syria and Mesopotamia. And he helped destroy the Amalekites in the south. Working under Saul while Saul was king, and then in the position of king himself, as he was later anointed, David fought hard and he fought heroically to unify Israel as one nation under his kingship, and repelled these other nations who sought to subjugate Israel and to corrupt their worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And when all was said and done, David had brought Israel together as one kingdom and secured political peace for the nation of Israel by being a man of war, the man of bloodshed that Israel actually needed for that time in history, And when he was finished, he passed this kingdom on to Solomon, God's chosen heir to the throne. And the kingdom David gave to Solomon was a kingdom of relative peace. Okay, It wasn't completely free of conflict, but vastly less conflict than when Saul and David were kings initially. And under the peaceful reign of Solomon, then Israel entered into its cultural climax, its golden age. Solomon built the temple and a magnificent palace for the king in Jerusalem, among some other astounding building projects that he undertook. He encouraged the cultivation of the arts in Israel and pursued greater wisdom and knowledge. You can read Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. He grew the treasuries of Israel so that he was one of the richest men on earth. He established Israel as this political force among the nations of the Middle East. And he gained influence and power over other nations and their territories. And his was a time of peace and prosperity and productivity in Israel. And all of this, all of it was a blessing from God so that Solomon could build the temple And so that the God of Israel could come and be glorified among the nations for saving and preserving his people Israel throughout history. Okay, now all of this information that I've just given you is to point out a very interesting historical process through which the kingdom of Israel was established. And you can probably see it now. First came war and then came peace. First war and then peace. And why is this important? Well, if we fast forward 900 years from David and Solomon roughly, Israel has now fallen far from its uh, peaceful glory days under Solomon. It's now a subject of the mighty Roman Empire and Israel is without power, without influence, seemingly abandoned by their God to grovel at the feet of Caesar in Rome. And yet the promise of God to establish the kingdom of David forever has not been forgotten. And so the people of Israel and the religious leaders of the day are on the lookout for the Messiah, the one who will save Israel from its humiliating subjugation under the pagan empire of Rome. This Messiah, the Savior, the chosen one, they believe, will rise up to lead a great army against the Roman Empire. This Messiah will be a long-awaited socio-political savior who will take power from the hands of Caesar and once again establish God's chosen people in their divine kingdom here on earth. And they expected the Messiah to be a man of war, like his father David before him who built the kingdom of Israel who through the sword and through bloodshed brought about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. This was the Messiah they were looking for, one who would bring another golden age of peace and prosperity through bloodshed. This was the Messiah the people of Israel were expecting, a great warrior, which is one of the reasons why they missed Jesus entirely. Jesus, who was the Messiah, the son of David, he simply didn't fit the bill. He was a peasant. He was a nobody. He was not a man of war. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he was a man of peace. If you remember from growing up as a kid, the the nativity story, right? What did the angels proclaim to to the shepherds in the field at the birth of Christ? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so Jesus came to bring peace to the people of God. He was not a warrior. He was a sacrificial lamb. And Jesus never lifted a finger to fight off the Roman Empire. The only blood that he shed was his own blood. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19-20, through 20, I've put it on the inside of your handout there. In the middle of this beautiful description of who Jesus was, this poetic picture of our Savior, all that he accomplished for sinners like you and me. Right in the middle of this description it says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And see, unlike David, Jesus came first for peace. And through the shedding of his own blood, he established the kingdom of God on earth through the forgiveness of sins, bought with the precious blood of Jesus the Messiah. God reconciled all things unto himself. And as far as the religious leaders and the people of Jesus' day were concerned, Jesus was an embarrassing failure as he hung on the cross and bled to death. They expected him to rise up against the nation of Rome, and instead he died at the hands of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. And the Jews demanded his death, at least in part, because he was a man of peace. And they wanted him to bring them glory and honor and power. He was not a man of war like they were looking for. They had set their sights too low, wanting only a king who would restore Israel to the days of its glory, not a king who would restore humanity to the days of its glory when mankind lived and walked with God in the garden. And so Jesus was overlooked for being a man of peace. Now that would be a great and comforting place for us to stop this morning, except for one small detail. The world is still a mess, isn't it? I mean, look at the newspapers recently, the front page, and you can clearly see that we don't live on a planet where peace is the rule. And yes, Jesus brought peace uh, with God for those who put their faith in him. I hope you trust him for your salvation. He first brought peace for you and for me. But after the eternal peace of righteousness that Jesus secured for those who believe in him, Jesus then brought war into the lives of Christians. The opposite of David and Solomon, he turned it on its head. Jesus first brings peace for those who believe, the peace of his cross, and then he brings war. I know I'm jumping around, but in Matthew 10.34, we find a very cryptic saying of Jesus that demands an explanation if he's this man of peace. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, what in the world does that mean, especially in light of the fact that Colossians 1.20 says he secured our peace? I mean, don't these two parts of the Bible seem to contradict themselves, contradict each other? Colossians says Jesus made peace and reconciled all things to himself through the blood of his cross, but Jesus himself says in Matthew 10 that he came not to bring peace but to bring a sword. Well, in order to understand what Jesus means, we have to look at what he says in the context, okay? And when it comes to understanding the Bible, guys, context is key. Be sure that you don't take a verse out of a larger context that it's in. People have made the Bible say all kinds of crazy ridiculous things by doing that. So to understand Jesus better, we have to see that he's talking to his disciples, to his followers, Believers like you and me. And he's telling them that he's sending them out to carry on his mission like sheep among wolves. To tell the world about peace with God that's available to them through Christ. And he warns them that because of their love for him, they will be hated and they will be despised, persecuted and put on trial. They may even die like people do in war. And he tells them that if the world hated Jesus... And rejected him. If the world despised him for speaking the truth. And eventually killed him for it. Then we as Christians should expect some suffering. Some persecution. Some casualties as a result of the war that Jesus brings to earth. We should never be surprised by that. And he says that those who stand for Jesus in the midst of this war. Jesus will stand for them before God Almighty. And he will defend their cause and cover them with the blood of his righteousness. But those who lack the courage to confess their sins and uphold the name of Jesus, then he will deny them before God Almighty. And this is the war that we are in right now. And we are so protected from it here in America. We are blessed to be sheltered from it. But this is the war that we are in. Jesus brought us peace with God. But as a result, the world hates us. And it is waging a war against us because we stand for Jesus. I want to read the whole, not the whole passage, but a chunk of the passage for you. Jesus says, "'Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother.' Your own family may betray you in this war being fought around the person of Jesus. And it may cost you your life to identify with Christ. And if we read the book of Revelation, we get a very cryptic picture of what this war going on looks like when it grows in intensity. And I don't presume to know how to interpret the prophecies of Revelation with any detail or certainty. I will never write a book about it. And if I did, don't read it. But what I can say with conviction is that at some point, this war that we are in the midst of will grow more intense until the day that Jesus, the man of war, crushes his enemies under his feet and establishes the eternal peace of God among the people of God. Okay, and this is the hard part. This is the idea right here that is a struggle. The idea that before Jesus brings to fruition all of the benefits of his kingdom of peace, he will first wage war against those who stand in opposition to him. And those who see Jesus as some fluffy, nice guy who's the homeboy of unrepentant sinners are going to be shocked and terrified to see the mighty power with which he overcomes those who oppose him. And Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so don't kid yourself. This is a picture of our God crushing his enemies under his feet like one crushes grapes in a wine press. And it's not my job to do that, understand. It's not your job as the church to do that. It does not belong to you, this responsibility to do that. We are called to love our enemies and leave that business up to God. But make no mistake that Jesus will bring the war to his enemies at the end of this epic story. And just like people missed Jesus the first time he came because he came without a sword, I sometimes wonder if when he comes the second time, people will miss him at first because he will show up with a sword. You can't be Jesus. Jesus is all hugs and smiles. And he'll come dressed for battle to defend the honor of a holy God. But for those who believe, for those who put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we need not fear and we need not despair. Because this Jesus, the man of war, will fight like King David to secure the victory for his people. So that when the battle is won, there will be eternal peace for those who look to Christ. And he will then rule for all time as the king of peace and never again will there be war or death or sorrow or loss or mourning. It will be joy and hope and peace. And what all of this means for you and for me today is twofold. And I'm going to close with some application here. First, we should never live like we are living in peacetime. This is not peacetime. Yes, Jesus secured our peace, and if our faith is in him, we are saved through his blood, and we are righteous before God the Father. We are saved and secure, and we can have peace. But the world is at war with Christians. It hates us because it hated Jesus. And in peacetime, people get comfortable In peacetime, they become weak and they become complacent. They forget the enemy is real and that their lives could be in danger. And let me tell you, I believe that many Christians in America are living like this is peacetime. We're complacent, we're weak, when we should be ready and strong to stand firm against a world that opposes us, to love a world that hates us, and we don't fight with physical weapons. Please understand me there too. We're not waging a war of the flesh. If you have a sword, you can put it down. The only blood that we should ever be prepared to shed is our own, to stand firmly and identify with our Savior, Jesus. But we still have weapons with which we, we fight this spiritual war. Truth and righteousness don't ever bend on those things faith and the confidence of our salvation don't ever doubt those things. Prayer and the word of God don't ever cease to persist in those things, just to name a few. And to be straightforward to the point, I have to ask you this morning, are you living with the urgency of the gospel in mind or are you lazy and complacent like this is peacetime? Are you prepared to be assaulted? Do you know what the truth is and how to handle the word of God in response to a world that wants nothing more than to crush you? Do you realize, do you realize that the people around you that you love and that you care about who don't know Jesus will be casualties in this war? The Bible tells us that they will go to hell because they are enemies of Jesus which is a hard concept to swallow. And for all eternity, they will suffer and they will be apart from the love and the grace of God. They will be lonely and broken and despairing. And they will be banished to spend eternity outside of the kingdom of God in heaven in eternal darkness and torment while you party inside because you get to be with Jesus. And forget the book Heaven is for Real, sometimes I think we need to remember that hell is for real, truly. And we need to let that idea break our hearts for the people we know who don't know Jesus. I mean, do you care at all that the people around you that you might know and that you love are dying in this war? Or do you pretend like the world is at peace and it doesn't matter? Again, it's up to Jesus at the end to sort out his enemies. That's not our business. But for as long as he allows me to draw breath in this life, I want to be his instrument of grace to save those who are perishing in this war. To tell them about the grace of God through Jesus. And So ask yourself, are you living comfortably and complacently like you're not in the middle of an eternally significant war? And the second implication for us is to remember that Jesus is the man of peace when all is said and done. We should never lose sleep over these things because peace is what we have through Jesus Christ. So don't worry like people do in times of war. In times of war, people worry and they're afraid and they're fearful. And too many Christians I know worry, 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 worry. As if Jesus was not sovereign, right? We worry about our children. We worry about our health. We worry about our finances. We worry about politics. We worry about our image. We worry about our future. We worry about the schools our kids will go to, the friends they're going to hang out with, the tragedies that we want to try and protect them from. We worry about death and then we worry about life. We worry about our jobs and we worry about war in the Middle East and Ebola in Africa. And we worry We just worry all the time about anything and everything as if Jesus was not in control and Jesus was not the God of peace and he is. And so stop, seriously stop. Just stop worrying about everything. He will build his kingdom like he did with David and Solomon. And here's what you need to know. I am not promising you that your life will be easy and free of tragedy. Far from it. The things that you worry about, they are true and they are real. I'm not telling you, just get over it. But we know how the story ends. Our God is greater and the peace of Christ dwells in your heart and the victory belongs to God already. Jesus is the son of David. We know how it goes. He establishes his kingdom and he reigns in peace and righteousness for all time. And all of us who trust in him, We have nothing to fear and nothing to lose because our God is sovereign and he is the God of peace. And So understand, David came first with war and then Solomon reigned in peace. And with Jesus, he first brings us the peace of righteousness that he secured through the blood of his cross. Because we know that through his blood we are saved which gives us then the confidence to stand firm in his name in this spiritual war that rages around us. We are double secure. That we are already saved by his grace and established once and for all eternally in his kingdom to be with him in peace and righteousness no matter what happens in this life. And yet we know too that there will come a day where he will bring that peace in its fullness and reality as he brings his kingdom come. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your peace. And Lord, would you banish the worry that we have in our hearts? Would you fill us with your peace? Would you help us understand the truth of the idea that we are secured by the blood of your cross, which means that we have peace with God? And Jesus, I pray that if there are any people in this room who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, who are destined for hell this morning, God, would you save them, please? Would you open their eyes to the urgency of this message? Would they hear that you are a God of peace and that all of the things that they have been searching for in this life are met and found in you? And God, would you help us to be people who live like we are living in wartime, Would we understand the seriousness of this conflict? Please, God. Would we have compassion on this perishing world? Would we be courageous to stand, even if it means losing our image or our blood? Would you make us people who stand for the peace of Jesus? In your name, amen.